This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Jai Utal. Jai is a Grammy-nominated musician who is best known as a world-renowned kirtan artist. Kirtan being ecstatic chant in a call-and-response format. His music is an eclectic mix of contemporary and ancient musical elements from various cultures throughout the Eastern and Western world. Jai has created five albums with Sounds True, including Kirtan! Exclamation point, and his latest release, Bhakti Bazaar. In this episode, Jai and I spoke about chanting as a devotional practice, the story of Jai's first trip to India, his experience meeting his guru, and his understanding of the many Hindu god and goddess figures. We also listened to three selections from his albums, Music for Yoga and Other Joys, Kirtan, and the new release, Bhakti Bazaar. Here's my conversation with Jai Utal. Jai, we're going to talk today about kirtan, or ecstatic chant. And, you know, I've been interviewing so many different people about different forms of spiritual practice, writing a spiritual practice, walking a spiritual practice. And it seems to me that chanting as spiritual practice might be the most fun form of all. And I'm curious, just to begin with, here you are, Mr. Ecstatic Chant Man. How much fun is it? <laughs> well, that's a funny question, Tammy. It's pretty much fun. But but I must say that the thing about, about kirtan, about chanting, that continuously amazes and surprises me is the opening of the emotional channel that occurs when we're singing. So I can be singing... And, and, you know, it's more intensified with the group, but even if I'm at home singing, there can be moments when I f- feel incredibly sad and incredibly, you know, despairing. And I say, you know, I think, where does that come from? And I keep singing, and then, you know, then suddenly, for some reason, I'm, I'm feeling this terrible anger, you know, but at who? At what? I don't know. I keep singing. And somehow it all seems to, to morph finally into this very beautiful feeling of wholeness and connectedness and thus joyfulness. So it's fun, it's, it, but it's, it's fun that, that takes you through a journey every single time to a place of, of uh, I think, real depth. And, and when we're in that place of depth, we usually do feel joy. Now that's interesting. I, I wouldn't imagine that in the process of chanting something like anger would surface, but it sounds like you're going into a feeling space and that all kinds of feelings come up. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Like all meditative practices, chanting takes us inside, and it takes us inside to places that we don't normally access in our you know, day-to-day life. So we journey inside of ourselves, and whatever's there is there. Um, I really encourage people, invite people to let the process of kirtan, of chanting, work on each one of us, rather than try to direct it with our own mind and our own consciousness, let our mind and our consciousness kind of follow. Because a lot of people come to a devotional experience and they think, well, devotional means it's got to be good, sweet, spiritual, um, you know, mild, all that stuff. And for some it might be, but for others... You know, like myself, I have so many different feelings in me that surprise me when they manifest. But when they come out in a kirtan, every single color of emotion is another kind of rope to connect to spirit, to connect to God. It's amazing. Now, you speak of it as a devotional practice. To whom or to what are you devoted while you're chanting? Well... 
I must say that when we get into the, a word like devotion, it invites a little bit of definition. Because kirtan, or chanting, is part of the tradition which is known as bhakti yoga. And bhakti yoga translates as the yoga of devotion. But in the Judeo-Christian world, the idea of devotion is quite different than in the ancient, ancient Vedic world from India. Here in the West, we have a, a somewhat narrow concept of devotion. In India, devotion really means every bit of the human heart, every corner and corridor, every color of the human heart, every color of feeling, every flavor of emotion is directed towards spirit and is used as a connection, as a personal, 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 personal connection to spirit. Now, what I'm saying, in, well, you say, who am I, who or what am I devoted to? On some levels, it's always changing. But on the deeper level, I'd say it's simply to God who exists in my heart and exists in every molecule and every bit of creation and takes form as my guru and takes form as my child and takes form as as Krishna, as Radha, as Rama, as Hanuman. Uh, but it's it's always that, you know, that light, that pulsating being who's closer to me than closeness. It's to that I'm just trying to connect and communicate and, and be as close to and be as... I mean, you know, it's kind of funny. Trying to be close to that which is closer than close. Well, you know, then we get into language and... <laughs> cognitive problems, but <laughs> but just that source that we all have. Najai, I'm curious, when you're chanting and you notice a feeling coming up inside of you that is perhaps difficult, maybe it's a, a feeling of sadness or, or loss or something like that, how do you work with it in a devotional way? You said don't direct the chant, so what do you do when that feeling emerges? I just sing. I try as much as I can to invest my melody, my mantra, my words, my rhythms with whatever emotion I'm feeling. Um, you know, it's subtle. How do we translate feelings into music? You know, every musician, that's part of the journey of what we do. And, and it can't always be expressed perfectly in words. But I just... I sing from my feelings. I sing from my heart. When the experience is sadness, the, you know, I don't know how, how I learned to do this or, you know, how I continue to learn to do this, but that sadness just inhabits my melody and my melody and my voice sing it and express it with the ebbs and flows of, of music. You know, all my studies of Indian music with Ali Akbar Khan, who is, who was, I should say, one of the greatest masters of Indian music. He died um, about a year and a half ago. For 40 years on and off, I studied with him. And, and every class, every lesson that he would give could be boiled down to the art, and, and I say the spiritual art, of translating feelings into notes and into melodic phrases. And how do we do that? You know, and it's, this is a, I guess it's like an ancient, ancient yogic science of music. And as Ali Akbar Khan would always say, you don't learn this in one lifetime, you learn this in many, many lifetimes. So I'm still learning it. But I guess that, I don't know if that answers your question, because it's a question that is not easily answered. I just feel it and I sing. And it, it's like it goes into the ethers. And then the next, the next, you know, kirtan is call and response, usually. So there's this constant, I sing, and the audience sings, I sing, the audience sings, I sing, the audience sings. So it's this constant um, back and forth, in-breath, out-breath, yin and, and yang thing that happens. So I sing, and then the audience answers, and then I sing. And, and each repetition it's strange, but each repetition can, can sometimes be a totally different experience. And how do I do it? I don't know. I just do it. Your answer is beautiful. A further question that I'm curious about is what the role of the body is for you when you're singing in terms of contacting the texture of the emotion. Well, 
A lot of people, that's a, that's a great question, because a lot of people approach singing and kirtan and, and bhakti yoga as a very kind of out-of-the-body, astral, blissful experience, and that's so totally not my experience. Well, I'm singing, I'm always, or almost always, very, very aware of my body. Uh, I'm, you know, for me, it's a very physical practice. I'm breathing in, I'm feeling the breath, I'm feeling, you know, the the energies or lack of energies inside of myself, and I'm singing, and I'm very conscious of how my body is producing the notes. I'm not practicing a body awareness like, for example, in Vipassana meditation or something like that. I'm not really deeply observing and evaluating the experiences of my body and how that might affect the shades of emotion. But I am just sitting in my body and feeling my body and feeling the weight of my body and singing from there. And I guess that's as far as I'll go with that. But I encourage people to not, you know, when they ask me about this stuff, to not seek an out-of-the-body experience while they're singing. Because occasionally that happens to me, but it happens to me really like when I'm exhausted or, you know, my energy is all weird from traveling or something. Then I will kind of go out of my body into that weird place. I, I, I call it weird. Others might call it blissful. For me, it's not very great. I like to be grounded. And to me, then, the experience is much more rich. I'd love to start moving into the music itself, and okay. I want to play a track from Music for Yoga and Other Joys. This is a song entitled Gopala, and it would be helpful if you could introduce it for us and tell us a little bit about this Gopala. Who or what is that? Gopala is Lord Krishna as a baby or as a young boy. Gopala is the name of Krishna uh, before he entered puberty and adulthood. Krishna is the Lord of of all creation. Now, I say that not he's not exclusively the Lord of all creation. Uh, so is Allah. So is, um, you know, so many. But he is one of the faces of the Lord of creation. He's the highest of all. And, but, as a little baby and as a little boy, there's so many amazing, amazing, amazing stories about Krishna, about Gopala. He is the embodiment of joy. The mother of, of Gopala, her name is Devaki, and she was the sister of an evil, evil king who had received a prophecy that Devaki's child would kill him. So his name was Kamsa. Now Kamsa because of this prophecy, he was killing all of Devaki's children at the moment of birth. And finally, he put Devaki and her husband, Vasudeva, in a dungeon and awaited the birth of the next child, who was going to be Krishna. So, to simplify the story, Devaki and her husband arranged this swap, where at the moment of birth, the baby Gopala would be swapped with her sister-in-law's baby, who was a girl. Because um, Kamsa was not killing the girls. So, at the moment of birth, Gopala was taken away from his mother and brought across the river to his foster mother, Yashoda. And he grew up in the town of Vrindavan. And everything he did created joy and created bliss for all the people around him. And the stories of his young life are so filled with happiness and the exploits of, of this little boy that, that, you know, you can't believe it while you read them. So we sing about Gopala, but it's an amazing two-sided coin. Because on one hand, the word Gopala bring, just evokes happiness and joy. But then we can't forget Devaki, who is there on the other side of the river, never seeing her child grow up and experiencing every minute this anguish, this pain. Well, all mothers will feel this, that if their child is taken away from them. this You know, it's like this primordial uh, despair of longing for to see her child. So Gopala, the mantra Gopala, the, and when we say the mantra, mantra means that which liberates the mind. And these words are Sanskrit words that were given to us millennia ago to transform our inner world and to connect us with the, the realm of pure consciousness. 
And this this name evokes joy and it evokes longing for spirit, for the divine spirit. The longing that Krishna's mother had and the joy that Krishna's foster mother had. Now, just one more question before we listen to this excerpt. We're going to listen just to a piece of this song someplace towards the middle. It seems that there's a structure to Kirtan that would be helpful to name for our listeners, where there's a a long introduction, the call and response, and then a conclusion. Could you explain a little bit just about the structure of a traditional Kirtan? Well, yes and no, because actually there isn't a fixed structure. I know that myself, when I'm with a group in a live setting, usually I will start something very, very slowly and then gradually build it up and then end it slowly again. But if you wander around India and listen to Kirtan in many different places, every single temple or home or you know, environment where people are singing kirtan will have a different sense of a structure. And it's very personal, and it's one of the great things about kirtan, that each person can approach it with their own set of aesthetics, their own mood, their own musical ideas, and the structure can be very different. So I, I have to say that, no, there is not a fixed structure. What is always maintained in kirtan is number one, the call and response, and the repetition. Repetition, repetition, repetition. Like, I must say, pretty much every meditative or spiritual practice from all over the world, unless I'm forgetting something, employs repetition. Because there's something about that that just unhinges the controlling workings of of the intellect. And the other thing is the mantras, the ancient mantras, that we kirtan singers experience as having so much power and richness and um, energy. So, uh, yeah, so that's that's my thoughts about the structure of kirtan. I always do it a little different. Wonderful. That That's very clarifying. Okay, let's listen to a piece of Gopala from Music for Yoga and Other Joys. Oh, uh-huh. 
said, Jai, about how there's no set structure, but it's about really making the chance your own. And, yeah. you know, I'm curious, here you are, you know, born in America, uh, born to a Jewish family, if I'm correct, yeah? That's right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this is a pretty foreign language and foreign gods and goddesses. And how have you made peace with all of that? Well, I, uh, <laughs> I didn't really have to make peace peace with it, because it was always very peaceful. Um, <laughs> you know, it's funny, in India they talk about this thing called samskaras, which I guess loosely translated, it means seeds that are planted in previous lives that sprout in future lives. Now I don't know for sure about any of that, but ever since I was a kid, the whole world of Indian culture and Indian arts and Indian, particularly Indian music, just awakened and resonated and just stimulated me so much. I remember, you know, I guess I may, maybe when I was like 10 or something, seeing a picture of some nomadic, I, maybe it was um, Rajasthani desert people, just a, a poster of it. And I was like, oh my God, that's me. Now, I've never had real strong past life recollections, you know, I don't even know if I ever had a past life, but probably we all did, and probably I must have had some in India. And uh, so it's never been a struggle of making peace. It's always been, you know, I'll tell you the truth, this might sound kind of crazy, but when I first went to India, I was 19, I stepped off the plane, and the New Delhi airport is nothing amazingly beautiful, I'll tell you that. But the smells and the sounds and the air, I had this incredible feeling of finally coming home and that the whole previous part of my life had been in exile and that India was my home. You know, now, many, 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 many years later, I feel actually a lot more balanced. But when I was younger, I, I never felt comfortable in my skin, in, the, in my family, in, my, in New York, in my culture. And when I got to India, I felt like, well, this is where I'm supposed to be. So I had started studying classical Indian music before I even went to India. I guess I was like 18 or 17 or something uh, with Ali Akbar Khan. And when I first heard the Hare Krishna singers in New York, I must have been about 15 or 16, and yeah, I wasn't moved to join that, that, uh, that movement, but I certainly was touched by it and really like, charged up by it so you know it, it's just a funny question i mean not a funny question it's a good question but it's a funny answer that w what causes us all humans to resonate really strongly to some things and not to resonate at all to other things and you know there's a zillion theories about that but i like the idea of the samskaras that things from last life give blossom in this life and and that's why we're drawn to certain things and Jai, can you tell us a little bit about that first trip to India as a teenager and specifically how you met your guru and what that was like for you? Well, oddly enough, I was going to India to see another guru who, I won't name the names right now, but I had thought that this other guru was my guru and 
and why I thought that is, well, that's a, a whole complicated story. But I did, and, and I went to see him, and I found out that he was in, in jail for murdering many of his disciples, which was a pretty bizarre situation for me. It must have been pretty bizarre for him, too. <laughs> now, many, 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 many years later, I don't know if that was true or not true. Well, I mean, whether he was guilty or not guilty, put it that way, it was true that he was in prison. And there are many stories about that and many sides to that story, and I won't even go into it. But the result was that I was suddenly there in India with no agenda, because my whole agenda had been suspended. And I was wandering around, and it was kind of strange, but I kind of like felt very free, because I think it was maybe the first time in my life that I had absolutely no agenda, and I was in this totally, totally foreign land that I knew nothing about. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what to do. And I was, you know, just looking for clues. Now, back in America, I had met and had been very impressed and very, you know, awed by Ramdas when he when he came back from his first trip to India. And, you know, I had lived in a yoga ashram and Ramdas had come over and I really liked him and I was really drawn to basically everything that he was doing and saying, like so many people were at the time. So I went into this bookstore in New Delhi and, and the shopkeeper said that Ramdas was in town and he told me where Ramdas was so I didn't know what I had nothing to do so I went over to see Ramdas now when I got to the hotel where Ramdas was they said that he had left and he had gone to this other town called Vrindavan to see his guru now I wasn't actually searching for a guru anymore because here I was I thought that the guru I, that I thought was my guru was a murderer so I was like well so much for gurus I was 19 and I'd already been there and done that with the world of gurus. I was very jaded. But I really liked Ramdas and I wanted to go see him and, you know, talk to him and hang out. So I went to Vrindavan. Make a long story short, a week later, I was in the temple, the Hanuman temple of Neem Karoli Baba, waiting for him to come out and give darshan or see the people who were coming for his blessings. And the strange thing was, I was the first one there. Now, me, this kid who who didn't want anything to do with gurus, was the first person there that morning when the doors opened. Now, 40-some-odd years later, I don't know why that was. I don't remember what I was thinking or feeling that morning. But I find it kind of funny and interesting and cool that the inner motivation was stronger than the mental uh, resistance. Mm-hmm. So it was, anyway, I was there, and, and Maharaji came out, and, well, I didn't immediately feel that this was my guru. It wasn't like one of those things where people say the light went off, and I knew he was my guru, and I was devoted to him forever. It wasn't like that, but I was very magnetized, and, you know, he was so filled with electricity and sparkling colors and there was music going on in the temple constantly there was 24 hour kirtan chanting of, the, of Hare Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare 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 Rama Hare Rama 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 Hare Hare and, and the music was so beautiful and Maharaji was just like this doorway into infinity and and plus I was 19 and there was tons of free food and nobody wanted to take any money from me because I didn't even have any money, and so I stayed. I came every day, I came every day, I came every day. And still not thinking that he was my guru, just just thinking that I wanted to go see him that day. Finally, after a couple of weeks, I went there in the morning and came to the gate, which was kind of behind this statue of Hanuman. And the guy at the gate said, you can't come in. And I said, why? And he said, well, Maharaj, you left last night. And since he's gone, no one can come in to the back. It was like the back court, courtyard. And I said, well, where did he go? And the guy said he didn't say. And I said, where did he, wh- when was he going to come back? And the guy said he didn't know. And suddenly my heart was like, oh, my beloved had left me. And furthermore, I didn't, hadn't even known that this was my beloved until that moment. And my heart just cracked open. And I went to sit in front of the Hanuman statue, they call it Hanuman Morti, and, and started singing. And I felt, you know, 
maybe maybe for the first time I felt so much emotion in my singing, so much sadness, so much connection to not only the sadness of that moment, but to all the sadness that that had been papering the walls of my inner home. And and singing and singing and singing. And and then some time passed and we, meaning the Westerners, were given some clues as to when Maharaji was going to reappear and where he was going to reappear. So I went to this town where he was scheduled to come. And I was waiting a couple of days. I was waiting and waiting and waiting. And I had this dream. And in the dream, I went to the train station in the middle of the night. It was this, it, the, the town was Allahabad. And I went to Allahabad station in my dream. And I was by myself. The train came in, and Maharaji stepped off the train. And, you know, he was always just wrapped in a simple wool blanket. And he stepped off to the train, and he opened his arms and wrapped the blanket around me, and I put my arms around him. And he was crying and crying and crying, and I was crying and crying and crying and crying. And it was this sense of, he was saying to me, finally, finally, you've come back, come back to me. And I'm saying, I was saying to him, finally, I'm back with you. And, you know, it was so deeply emotional and deep, deeply, uh, the feelings were so deep. And it was the, the sense that we had been connected and that he had been taking care of me and protecting me and guiding me for centuries and centuries, lifetimes and lifetimes and lifetimes and lifetimes. And finally, I had come back this life. So I woke up from my dream, and I was, like, you know, really kind of dazed. You know, I don't remember. I, I remember the dream more clearly than I remember the, the feeling that I had when I woke up from the dream. But I recall that I looked at the clock, and it was something like one twenty in the morning, you know, a.m. And uh, after a bit, I went back to sleep. And then that morning, I got up, and I went to the house where I, uh, that I had been visiting every day, waiting for Maharaji to come. And everything was different at the house. The people were all quiet and walking around, like, you know, walking on eggshells, kind of. And I said, what's up? What happened? And they said, well, Maharaji arrived last night by himself at the Allahabad train station at 1.20 in the morning, and, and he's alone in his room now. And, you know, I was, uh, I was... Well, the dream had really revealed to me that he was my guru. But I know my own mind that probably after a couple of days I would have started doubting the dream. Oh, it was just a dream, you know. But the fact that then this earth reality put a stamp of reality on, like, like cosmic reality on the dream, and, you know, it felt like, well, okay, from that day on I knew that Maharaji was my guru. But you know, to this day, again, when, when was that? That was 1971, I guess. So 39 years or 40 years. It's a long time ago. I still don't exactly know what is meant by a guru-disciple relationship. What is a guru? Who is a guru? I think the reality of that is beyond our minds, although, you know, we can speculate and talk and write and discuss, you know, for a million lifetimes. But it's bigger than that, and and um, all I know is that that you know that trip to India when I was nineteen, and I was there for four months, and out of the four months, probably two months were actually in the physical presence of Neem Karoli Baba. Since then, my life has been revolving around uh, you know uh, I'm a planet revolving around his son. Now, has that spared me from going through the waves and ups and downs of, of human karmic existence. No, not at all. But maybe maybe I could say he saved my life 10,000 zillion times. And I feel so much grace and so much blessings in my life now. And I attribute it to him. Because I kind of know myself that left on my own devices, I'm not that spiritually directed person I'm more like selfish and lazy and and um, self-destructive but I don't know Maharaji's being and his spirit so many years after he's not even in his body are so central to my life now and it's kind of it's kind of uh, unbelievable 
Well, it's a very powerful metaphor that you've offered, the idea of a planet revolving around the sun, Maharaji, your, your guru being the sun. How does that actually play out in your life? What does that mean? For one thing, if you come to our home, you see pictures of him all over the place, looking at us, just kind of like uh, benevolently guiding the, <laughs> the steps that we take. As a day-to-day spiritual practice, I do a couple of things regularly every day, a couple of little rituals, little offerings and um, chants, kirtans, things that I do every day without fail. But they're very short. You know, I'm not a, it's not like I'm a big disciplined uh, you know, a, a guy that sits for hours doing spiritual practices. I'm not that. But I, I, I offer to my guru the, my actions and the fruits of my actions on a daily basis. Now, as soon as my little ritual of offering is finished, I, I forget and I take it all back. But, but I trust and I hope and I pray that he's guiding each of, you know, guiding my footsteps. You know, having a, a kid is such a huge, huge, huge shift in my life. And on every level, a wondrous, wonderful, amazingly fabulous shift in my life. But from the very beginning... You know, I came up with this huge question, how am I going to be a father to this amazing, amazing little being? Or I should say huge being in a little body. And so I asked my wife, I said, please guide me, please guide me. And then, you know, I go and I sing and all these, you know, with groups and I'm sitting there in front of my microphone and in front of my instrument and I'm, you know, I'm thinking about this and that. I'm thinking about when am I going, where am I going to sleep, and how am I going to get a good night's sleep, and when am I going to get home? I'm, you know, not, I'm not spiritual. I don't have these spiritual divine thoughts. And but you know, for a moment, I pray. I say, Ah, oh, Maharaji, I'm here for a reason, and all these people are here for a reason. Please guide my voice. Please guide my heart. Please guide my my melodies. Please guide my words, and take over this this event. And then I go into it and. You know, every time we eat, we say, you know, we say a moment of prayer. And when I say moment, it's like really fast. But I say, Maharaji, take this food, take this food, and turn it into into something that will sustain my spirit as well as my body. And then we eat, you know. And I, I say these things inside. I don't say them outside. I'm not sure what my wife is saying, and I'm not sure what my little boy is saying. But it's like Maharaji is living in our home with us. Now, Jai, I'm willing to accept your first-person report just as it is, <laughs> I mean, just on face value. And at the same time, a question emerges, and I'm just curious how you would respond to it, which is, is Maharaji a symbol for you? Not necessarily an external force that's actually guiding and helping you, but simply a symbol that brings out this higher nature in you. Well... I'll tell you what I what I feel about that. Again, it, it goes back to what I said before, where I, where I think what and who the guru is is beyond our real, real understanding. I feel like guru, like there's such a thing as the guru principle, and it's this this aspect of the infinite divinity which manifests to guide us. And I feel like some people, I feel like every person has a guru, but only for some people the guru takes a human form and and why that is it's not because those people are special i don't know it's just because those people need that so to me the guru took form as maharaji now i feel maharaji is very present and that he's not a symbol that he's an actual being that might not have you know solid physical form but is form nonetheless and not just an abstract symbol or, or just like an imaginary symbol. I feel like he's really real. And I think most, if not all, of the people who were with Maharaji, Indians and Westerners, back in 60s and, well, some 50s, 60s and early 70s, also have this experience that his presence is very tangible. So I think he's real <laughs> and not just a symbol. But... I also feel like it doesn't matter what I think exactly that the presence of 
that being who is the guru is is just constant and and our awareness of that presence is of course not constant because we're human beings but the presence itself is constant thank you i'd love to play now one of my favorite songs from the sounds true catalog of jay utah we have five different records actually that we've released and one of them is a double cd set on kirtan and the very first song is a song I've listened to over and over again. It's called Ganesha Sharanam. And maybe you can just briefly introduce it, and then we'll listen to it together. Okay, sure. Well, Ganesha is the elephant-headed god from India, who's very, very popular in the West in all the yoga studios and, uh, and yogic traditions. Ganesha is the one who is said to clear the obstacles from our path. And he's a very jolly god and he's uh, he's loved by all the kids and Ganesha Sharanam says simply I take refuge in Ganesha the great elephant he's the son of Lord Shiva and when we're recording this you know when I'm recording all these records I have a vague plan in my mind but but a lot of it is, is really stream of consciousness like you know whatever ideas come up we'll try them out and which is one of the great things about having a, a studio at home. So Ben and I were recording that day in my home studio, and, and our friend, a woman named Lisa Maria, comes over with her daughter, Shirako, and we said, Hey, Shirako, you want to try to sing this? And she says, Sure. And she said, How much are you going to pay me? And I said, Well, I don't know. I'll pay you $10. And she said, Okay, I'll do it. <laughs> and she was a little girl at that point, and she sat down, and we recorded her, and she sang, and you know, I, I thought it was really fun and really cute. Uh, what I didn't expect is just how many, 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 many people have totally responded to hearing an Indian kirtan with a kid singing. And um, I'm really, I love that fact that this has touched so many people's hearts and so many kids, too. So here it is, Ganesha Sharanam. <laughs>
song jai I, I love it too i'm curious about something we've now mentioned several different hindu gods and goddesses just in our short conversation here you know we've talked about krishna ganesha you mentioned how you were sitting in front of a uh, hanuman, hanuman yeah. yeah and so how do you personally make sense of all of these different hindu figures in some ways it doesn't make sense at all you know, to anyone in our Western world upbringing, there's not a lot of sense in it. How, how can we have blue-skinned, 16-armed gods and goddesses? It's just kind of crazy. But, you know, in all my traveling and wandering and, you know, both physically traveling and also kind of internally traveling, there have been different times when all of these beings have felt very, very, very real to me. And then other times where they feel more like archetypal or mythological or just like educational, I guess you could say. And so I notice in myself that my mental understanding and, you know, mental explanation of this whole Vedic Vedic tradition seems to change. And yet what the contemplation of these deities does to my inner being it doesn't change. It always seems to resonate and awaken and create movement and create transformation within me. So I guess I come to this place where I don't try to make sense of it. You know, I realize that this world, and when I say this world, I don't even mean earth, and I don't even mean material existence. I mean this universe of consciousness and of many worlds and of many overlaying layers of worlds and many realms and many... Uh, you know, they call them lokas in Sanskrit. We can't make sense of it. You know, one of the great things is when somebody once said, well, 300 years ago, what would somebody have said about the idea of a television? Or just 100 years ago, what would people have said? Or oh, put it this way, what, even 50 years ago, what would someone have said about the idea of the new iPhone where we can actually see each other while we're talking? They would have said, you're out of your mind. So... Uh, you know, there's so much more than meets our eye. I've come to the place where I totally, totally, totally accept a four-armed, blue-skinned god named Vishnu resting in the couch-like body of a thousand-headed serpent named Shesha who is floating in an infinite ocean of milk. And meanwhile, the goddess Lakshmi, the eternal beloved of Vishnu, is giving him a foot massage. And out of Vishnu's belly... Out of his navel is floating this lotus, and inside the petals of the lotus is the four-faced creator god, Brahma. I accept that as a reality. What do you mean by that? You accept it as a reality. What do you mean by that? That, that the existence of these beings is as real as the existence of myself. Okay. Just, um, just checking. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I don't necessarily think about it all that much. It's like, I think that Krishna... Well, I'll put it this way. You know, one of the great, great, great epics of India is the Ramayana. Well, the Ramayana is the story of Rama, who is God in human form, and his beloved Sita, who is goddess in human form. And their wanderings through the jungle, through the forest, the adventure of their life, the abduction of Sita by the demon king Ravana, and her eventual salvation by Rama and his best 
beloved friend and devotee Hanuman, the monkey god, who is actually Shiva. So I've read this story and heard this story so, so many times since I was, you know, I guess since I was a teenager. And I remember there was one time, you know, it's probably about 20 years ago, 25 years ago maybe, I was reading this story again and feeling what an amazing, amazing uh, metaphor this whole story is for the internal uh, spiritual journey. And I was studying it in, in that light, and I was reading some books that were, you know, essays about the Ramayana from that point of view, and thinking, you know, the whole system of archetypes and and how each character of the Ramayana was an archetype, and so much could be learned and so much inspiration could be gained from it. But, of course, I wasn't thinking that it had actually happened. You know what I mean? So I went to India then, shortly after that. It was one of my trips. And I was in South India at my guru's ashram in South India. Now, this was after my guru had died. And there is a woman who, a very, very elder, very, very spiritual, very, very wonderful, wonderful woman who is taking care of Maharaji's temples. So she said to me, Hey, Jai, you know, she spoke in Hindi, but she said, Jai, let's go visit Rameshwaram. And not just me, a bunch of people. And she took us on this little pilgrimage to this town called Rameshwaram, which was one of the key places in the story of the Ramayana. And we got there, and it was an overnight journey. It was really amazing. It was really fun. It was really cool adventure. And first thing she does is she takes me to a palace, an old, old, run-down, broken-up palace. And she says... This is one of the places... Well, see, she points this palace out as one of the places where a lot of the Ramayana had taken place. And I instantly got this kind of uh, trembling energy, like, wow, this was where... You know, it was physical. And then for the rest of the day, she took us to all these other places where different events of the Ramayana had occurred. And by the end of the day, this story that I had felt was an archetypal story, was a myth, was a was a teaching myth, was a you know, a devotional romantic tale had become absolutely real to me. Because each of these places was so filled with energy and with power and with the literal remembrance of different episodes of the story. So since that time I haven't thought about it in the same way at all. I've thought about it as totally as a history that occurred in a time when life on earth was quite different than it is now. Now, am I nuts? Maybe. But, you know, there's quite a big, 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 big tradition behind me saying, no, I'm not nuts, that this did actually happen, and that what we think we know about the history of human beings on this planet is only very small, small, small glimmer of what the reality actually is. So, so I don't know, Tammy. So since that day, I, my understandings and my appreciation of all these crazy stories of Hinduism has changed. And at the same time, when I tell people the stories and I kind of relate some of the background behind the kirtans and behind the chants, I always say, and I really believe, that it doesn't matter on which level one appreciates these stories. Because if you take, you know, if you take it as mythology, as, if you take it as archetypes, if you take it as metaphor, or if you take it as absolute reality, you know, that's all mental. But what happens emotionally, internally, on the soul level, happens regardless of how we, you know, what we believe mentally. So, so, I, you know, and the words that we sing in Kirtan, the effect of them is is so strong and so powerful, and, and it really matters very little whether one takes it as just as, a, you know, like singing to Krishna, for example, takes it as just an energy or as a symbol or as an actual physical being. It really doesn't matter. I don't care, you know, what another person feels when they're singing it. I mean, I care in that... Well, I, I, let me reword that. I care what they feel, but I don't care what they think. 
because I trust so much that this practice and these mantras and that these stories, because the stories are like mantras as well, have a great, great, great transformative effect on me and on everyone who invests in them. What do you mean, Jai, the stories are like mantras? Well, a mantra is a word that transforms the mind, that liberates the mind. The stories of these gods and goddesses are stories that transform the mind. Now, I don't necessarily expect anyone to believe me when I say that, so I'm only speaking from my experience, from my own belief, my own, you know, what's happened to me and what continues to happen to me when I hear or tell these stories. Particularly, you know, if I hear them from someone who's inspired, just, you know, which makes sense anyways, I feel that the stories awaken different places in me every time I hear them or every time I tell them. You know, it's just like the Baal Shem Tov and, you know, the Kabbalistic Jew- Jewish tradition. They tell stories over and over again because the stories themselves elicit responses like spiritual expansions and transformations inside the listener. So that's what I mean by the stories being a mantra. It's not, you know, literally the stories are not a mantra, but they carry the same energy as mantras in so much as they carry the energy of these deities. I want to end our conversation, Jai, by playing a excerpt from a track from your new CD, Bhakti Bazaar, and we're going to listen a bit to Rama Bolo, which may be particularly appropriate in light of our discussion here about the Ramayana. But introduce a little bit Rama Bolo. Well, Rama or Ram is one of the you know great names in the Kirtan tradition. Rama. You know, all the things we could very loosely say, okay, it just means God. They're all different names of God. And that is true. I think maybe that's the widest, most true translation of any of them. But Rama is also the name of this particular aspect of God who manifested as a human being, a king, in the Ramayana. But my guru, Maharaji, he used to say, he would say, Ram, 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 all the time. He would say it, you know, under his breath. He would he would count Joppa, like repetition on his fingers, and he would always say with the name of Ram, or the name of Rama, the impossible becomes possible. Everything is possible if we repeat that mantra, Ram. So, I love to say that word, Ram or Rama, it's the same thing, and it has been so important a word in my life since I met Maharaji in 1971. Bolo is a Hindi word, that simply means speak or say, or sometimes we could say sing. Rama Bolo, sing, sing Rama, sing Rama, sing Rama. From Bhakti Bazaar, new record by Jayutal. Oh, oh, oh. 
just one final question here, Jai. I heard you say that you even feel a little shy sometimes right before you begin singing, and I'm curious if you can just give some encouragement. To our listeners who may be thinking, you know, whenever I hear Jai's music, I want to sing along with it, but I just feel a little shy. <laughs> um, you know, I struggled my whole life, and I still continue to struggle with the voices inside of myself that say, "Jai, you shouldn't sing. Your voice isn't good. You're not a natural singer." You should, you know, you're good at playing an instrument, but don't sing. Your voice is horrible. Besides, what do you have to offer? You're not spiritual. You're not even very nice, and all this stuff. You know, I, like so many of us, have those incredible voices of self-criticism and self. You know, I'll say the full thing: self-loathing, which is, you know, sounds so extreme, but it's a rampant disease. Didn't the Dalai Lama say that the one difference between our culture and his culture is that? People in the West don't like themselves. So I just say to people who ask me this, I say, well, I realized at one point that I was kind of like on the soul level. It was kind of like sing or die. Okay, all these voices were saying, don't sing, don't sing. You're horrible. Don't sing. Your voice is horrible. Who are you kidding? And the other side was saying, well, singing was the only thing that made my soul feel really whole and really connected and made me feel, you know, even slightly free from the constraints and chains of all that conditioning. So I decided one day, I don't know if it was really one day, you know, but it was like, I decided, okay, if it's sing or die, I'd rather sing. My soul wants to sing because that's how I feel whole and free. So I started singing. Now, the voices of criticism, self-criticism, they haven't gone away, Tammy. This is many, many years later, and they're still quite there. But they don't have such a strong hold on me. And when they start screaming at me, I just say, hey, guys, thanks for sharing, and I'm going to keep singing, and uh, if you don't like it, well, <laughs> you'll have to suffer through it. I'm saying that to myself, you know. And then... Usually they walk off and try to find another theater to attend. But this is what I share with people. I say, you know, I say, we got to sing. It's part of our, other, you know, other cultures, people sing all the time. In India, people sing all the time. In Brazil, even, you know, my wife, Nubia, she sings all the time. She knows 10 zillion songs, and she always sings them. Why do we in North America and Europe, too, I would say, why are we so constricted around this beautiful human expression well you know so i just encourage people to move forward into it even with those voices and even with those fears and even with that shyness and even with that ridiculous belief that we shouldn't sing and, and the other thing i do is which is more for myself these days i'm not as nervous and you know shy and filled with stage fright as i used to be but sometimes it comes up stronger than other times i don't exactly know why but what I do is I just talk about it to the audience. You know, I don't go into like a full-on therapy group, but I mention it. I, I try to be real with people because I find that when I'm honest and not hiding, then the, the powerful hold that these feelings have upon me becomes less powerful. And then I can just, you know, sing. And I used to think, oh, people want to only see the strong, powerful Jai singing full of strength and power or whatever, you know. And I, later I realized, well, no, people want to see humanness. We all want to see humanness in each other because that's what we love, you know. We're humans, and we generally don't love the humanness in ourselves, but when we see it in others, that is what we love. So I just try to be honest about it and not hide it at the times when I really am scared, you know. And I, it seems to help others, too, which is really cool. But, you know, the motivation at first is to help free myself from these <laughs> terribly inhibiting inner ogres. Well, I love it. And Jai, you've been so honest, human, and transparent in our conversation today. I really appreciate it. And what I'd say to all of our Soundstree listeners is start singing, keep on singing, sing, sing, sing. 
These uh, five CDs that we have from Jai are fabulous to sing with. I love to sing with them, usually in the car by myself, but still quite at a high volume. We've uh, we've heard today from a new release from Jai Utal and Ben Leinbach, Bhakti Bazaar, and also from a previous release, Music for Yoga and Other Joys. Jai has also created a double CD set on the art and practice of Kirtan, as well as two other releases from Sounds True, one called Dial M for Mantra, which is a remix of Jai Utal songs by Rara Avis and Shaman's Dream, and also a release called Loveland, Music for Dreaming and Awakening. Jai, thanks so much for being with us here on Insights at the Edge. Thank you. Thank you, Tammy, and also thank you for creating such a great, supportive, and beautiful record company. Fabulous. Our pleasure. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey.